This morning, <laughs> I want to talk about distraction. And this comes from last week's uh, suggestion that it would be a good topic. I don't know if the person who suggested it is here. <laughs> but uh, I thought it was a great topic. And so I want to, uh, I want to look at the nature of distraction and, in, in, in a way, how our practice is a response to, to distraction. There's a way in which we can see all of the practice of mindfulness and opening the heart as a way of addressing distraction. Um, the literal meaning of distraction in its etymology coming from, I think, the Middle Age, Middle Age English is to draw apart. That's to distract is to draw apart. And it really, in a sense, means that our attention is drawn apart from what we're originally intending to attend to. That there's distraction is really about the loss of the one's original focus of attention. And that can happen for all sorts of reasons. It may be that something comes which seems way more interesting than the original intention. In our meditation, we were talking earlier, there can be many things that seem much more interesting than the breath. In fact, quite an endless number of things that can seem more interesting than the breath. So, so distraction is this quality where our attention, we're focusing um, in the moment or it could be more generally in our lives, we're, tr- we're focusing in one direction and our attention gets drawn into another direction. And that's, that's, that's what distraction is. And typically, the reason that distraction is a problem is that we're often on automatic pilot. We're often not even aware that we have lost our focus or that our attention has been drawn elsewhere. Um, So one major problem of distraction is that we can't really follow our core intentions. We can't really follow, and we're we're actually somewhat unaware that it's even happening. And the, the other main problem with distraction is that we, in a sense, uh, tend to follow our conditioning when we're distracted. We tend to follow our conditioning, and our conditioning uh, has a strong dose of greed, hatred, and delusion. (laughs) It's it's a strong part of our conditioning, so when we might be distracted, we might actually be just looking for something that feels pleasurable in whatever way you know, mentally, emotionally, whatever. Or we might be just following an aversion, following some reaction to something that may have happened. Or we may just be wandering in a kind of um, deluded way, almost like a dream, you know, where we might be just um, having our minds go from one thing to another. In the Buddhist teachings, there's an understanding of what's called uh, papancha, which I've sometimes talked about, P-A-P-A-N-C-A, which is usually translated as conceptual proliferation. 
And in many ways, distraction takes the form of papancha or conceptual proliferation. So I might be with my breath, in, out, in, out, said, what should I bring for Thanksgiving? Hmm, for that meal? Hmm. Which is a legitimate question. And my mind can go to, um, well, maybe it's a, it's a big family gathering and I'll just bring some dessert. I'll go to dessert and you know, while I'm at that, while I'm shopping for dessert, I might as well get, I really need these other things. And hmm, why didn't I do that yesterday? I'm, I'm not organized. And I should really, yeah, there's a really great book on how to, how to be organized <laughs> in a simple way. And should I get, no, maybe I'll wait, I'll wait till it's remainder. <laughs> no, okay. Where, okay. Yeah. Oh, oh, right, the breath. <laughs> now, this, that's just a hypothetical example. Does anyone, no one experiences anything like that. But, um, and so our minds go off in these directions. And, you know, I think distraction can sometimes be creative. So I don't want to totally be negative about distraction. And, and sometimes it's actually helpful to take a break, not just to be focused all the time on everything, 24 you know, hours a day or whatever. But generally, distraction has those problems. And much of a, many of us live much of our lives, as it were, taken away by distraction. And our practice, in a way, wants to bring us back to be able to attend both in the moment to what our focus is, and I think also more broadly to have our lives not be distracted. It's very easy to have our whole lives or even the whole larger culture be a culture of distraction and to really not focus on what's important. And so that's what I want to explore in a little more depth and, and open up to. In a way, it, the distraction is a kind of a stream that just takes us away. And I think in, in the teachings of the Buddha, he talks quite often and says that my teachings go against the stream. They go against the normal stream. And we can really see that, that he's saying it's possible to lead a non-distracted life. It's possible to live with clarity both in the moment and moment to moment, and also about what our lives are about, to be non-distracted in that way. And so I think when we think about the idea of this practice and teachings going against the stream, it goes against the stream of our individual distraction, you know, which is, has, often has a lot of momentum. And I think it also goes against the culture, which in many ways is a culture of distraction. You know, I was, um, in preparing for the talk, I, uh, I googled distraction. Whether this was a moment of distraction in preparing my talk, I don't know. But I googled distraction and I found out something. I didn't know, maybe some of you know this, but there's actually a British game show called Distraction. Anyone know this? And it's actually, um, I, found, I, I found out it's uh, actually on the U.S. Comedy Channel. And so here's, here's the nature of the uh, British game show Distraction. At the start of the show, there are four contestants, usually two women and two men. Before the first round, they get to know each other, finding out about each other's embarrassing 
moments, unique hobbies, strange talents, or previous unflattering occupations. The first three rounds are usually quizzes involving rather easy questions. However, these rounds feature various distractions, hence the name, to cause pain and or discomfort while contestants try to answer the easy questions. The distractions may be endured through the round, activated in order to answer questions or punishment for incorrect answers, or sometimes as a result of getting a question right. At the end of each round, the player who has performed worst is eliminated and receives nothing. <laughs> this is a metaphor for the worst aspects of our culture, maybe. Um, distractions have included being shocked with electricity as one tries to answer questions, such as with electric dog collars, pushing buzzers surrounded by cacti while blindfolded, sticking one's hand in live mousetraps to answer a question, being shot with paintballs, urinating in a specially designed toilet to activate one's buzzer, contestants drinking shots of hot sauce, or being hung upside down and tickled on the soles of their feet. So, and apparently people watch it because the, <laughs> the show has actually gone from England to now being shown in 16 countries. So that was kind of a distraction from the main, main thrust of the talk, but, but, but all, all um, um, joking aside, it's, it's actually helpful to look to see how our distraction appears in our, in our experience. You know, how do we get distracted? Because in a way, what our practice is about is really about addressing that distraction and finding ways to have that, have that focus. And I was thinking that there really are these three broad ways that we get distracted. One is just moment to moment. That there's a way in which we, we, that we often have a hard time really attending to what's present. And we see that in our meditation. It's one of the reasons we meditate. Meditation is a kind of attentional training to avoid distraction. And we see that it's challenging to stay focused and to maintain attentional focus on an object, on what we're, what we're looking at. And so that's one main sense of distraction. We actually can't attend very well. We need training. It, we have our, our minds uh, in their normal state uh, are often quite unable to attend in a non-distracted way. And so that's one main meaning of distraction. That is simply the way our minds work moment to moment. I think there's a second core meaning, which is that we uh, often are um, distracted during the day. We just go from one thing to another and we don't really attend so well. We're somewhat on automatic pilot a good part of our days. And we don't necessarily do what's important to do. We often lose sight of what's important. And we don't stay so present. We just go from one thing to another, often just trying to complete our to-do list or to do whatever. We often may find that our days are distracted. And the third sense of distraction is, I think, more on the level of our lives. It's possible for our lives to be essentially distracted. And what does that mean? It means not to be 
connected with what's most important. You know, that we can have distracted lives. One um, sense of distraction when we look through our whole lives is that it's a distraction from what's important. We can live our lives not focused on what's important. And we can do so, I think, while being quite undistracted moment to moment. We can be very focused and work very, very hard all our lives and be distracted from our deeper purposes. That's interesting. You know, so we can have the sense of being non-distracted moment to moment, but we can be distracted in the sense that we haven't attended to what's important. So I want to talk about those three main ways that we get distracted and, and continue to explore that. So, <clears throat> so on the first level of what, what does distraction look like individually? What does it look like moment to moment in our experience? Um, there's a psychologist named Ellen Langer who teaches at Harvard who coined the word mindlessness kind of as an opposite of mindfulness. But she actually, I think, coined it without necessarily knowing about Buddhist meditation. And she said that we're mindless in a number of different ways and that this is a kind of way that many of us spend our lives. You know, so, this is, so it's important for us to look to see the extent to which this is true of ourselves. To what extent am I distracted? She talks about mindlessness as being on automatic pilot being, just work going automatically through the day. And she said that this occurs in three main ways. The first is by what we could call stereotype thinking. Our thinking just follows very habitual grooves. We go into very common ways of thinking. Things aren't fresh. We don't, as it were, think out of the box. But our, our, our minds just repeat over and over again the same things. And um, there was a Stanford study, I think, that showed that 93% of our thoughts are repeated. Day to day, 93% of what we actually think, moment to moment, we've already thought. And many of our thoughts, we, we repeat over and over again. That there's, you know, this was something that shocked me when I first meditated, that I found that particularly for myself, um, when I first looked at my mind, I found that I planned over and over the same thing. And I was, I was a student at that time, and I would notice that I would have a report due in two or three days, and I'd plan it out 80 times, you know, over and over and over again. You know, as, and there were the same thoughts. It was as if I was um, actually anxious, which was the case. You know, that there was some anxiety that was feeding it. But there was this repetition over and over and over again. And so we often go down the same grooves. A lot of our, a lot of our moment-to-moment thinking goes under very old patterns, you know, particularly when there's stress. We might follow very, very common patterns. And part of what we do in meditation is we get to, to look at that. Um, She said also, not only do we have very uh, stereotyped ways of thinking that follow certain patterns. In other words, there's something almost in our organism that doesn't want to look freshly at things, that wants to just do things the way they've always been done. Is that familiar? 
And that that contributes to a sense of being being mindless and not attentive. We're just like a, we're a little bit like a robot, right? We're just following things. Uh, We're just following these patterns. And we also, we can uh, be quite mechanical at times. And she said there's also a third aspect. The first aspect was using stereotyped, categories and concepts that we use all the time. The second was, was performing mechanically. And the third was simply not paying attention. And that a large part of our days are like that. We're somewhat mindless and somewhat distracted. And I'm, I'm wondering, when you think to yourself, what does distraction look like in my life? What does it feel like to be distracted? Go inside for a little while and ask yourself, What is the experience of distraction actually like? Would anyone like to just share briefly, maybe in a sentence or two, what does distraction feel like? What is it, what is it like from the inside? Or what's your experience of distraction? For me, sometimes distraction is procrastination. Could be procrastination. Trajectory and just not going, not So deliberately not attending to what you know you need to do. And sometimes that can be helpful. Sometimes we need breaks, right? So I think distraction has some value. I don't want to be totally negative. You know, I know it's actually, you know, I know when I'm working or doing writing or something like that, that breaks are very, very crucial. And sometimes it is, you know, it is a way that I just relax the mind, but then I come back. But procrastination would be more of the negative thing where, the break becomes the norm, and it might come again. We can, we can ask, how much is my distraction driven by something else? This is where we can look with mindfulness, right? We can say, is my, is my procrastination, it's kind of clear, right? It's driven by some, could be some uh, mix of things that are preventing me from doing what needs to be done. Yeah. Please, uh, George? Uh, well, um... I'm thinking that sometimes I'll start to do something on automatic <coughs> pilot. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go up to my bedroom and get my watch. Mm-hmm. So I start to do that. And as I'm doing that, my mind goes off. By the time I get there, I've forgotten why I'm there. That's <laughs> <laughs> uh, distraction from yeah. something that's so ordinary. Yeah. That, uh, that happens a lot. Yeah, just, just, yeah. How many people can relate to that? <laughs> Okay. Some other forms that just, please, yeah. Um, I, get, I get shattered, you know, in that, um, let's say I go to the container store, and there's so much around. Yeah. At. So even though I went in for one thing, yeah. I go around and find everything else, and I'm all over the place, but I just feel like just shattered. I'm crazy. Yeah, just feeling like you get distracted, just, I can't handle this. Yeah. Yeah, like I go in and I get uh, distracted, and some of it in stores is almost deliberate, right? And I'll get back in a moment. There's a strong, as we know, there's a strong social and cultural dimension to distraction, right? So, please. Mine is to avoid pain and suffering. Mm-hmm. If I keep busy, a lot of the feelings don't come up. Yeah. You don't have to face them. So for me, it's 
It's avoiding pain. Mm-hmm. And how many people can relate to that, at least at times in your life, like distraction? And, you know, and, and that may have some intelligence to it, right? But it's, it's maybe a question of degree or balance, right? Yeah. And your life can be sort of normal if you don't have those feelings and that emotional thing to carry, if you can distract yourself away from that. And yeah. Yeah, yeah. And we'll come back to that because the, the emphasis on our practice <coughs> is to find skillful ways not to be distracted and hence at the right, with the right time, at the right time to approach what's difficult or painful. Yeah, please. This is kind of off what you talking about. Sometimes distraction feels like a way to not be anxious. Mm-hmm. So if I'm feeling anxious, then I get distracted and I move around and I do things rather than sitting still and mm-hmm. being with the man. Yeah. Yeah, sometimes just I'm feeling, whatever, bored or anxious or what other feelings might we be feeling? Could be all sorts of things, you know. Could be difficult feelings that leave me, oh, I'll just relax by planting, you know, television obviously functions in that way or could be any number of media. Nowadays, probably surfing the internet, right? Just take me away. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Distraction does distract you from the overwhelm so that you feel like you could make a beginning and start yeah. something. Yeah. So maybe one more at the back. Yeah. Yeah, that there's some, yeah, like some, some way that it feels internally at least like when one's going over and over the to-do list, uh, like one's actually responding to the situation or managing in some way. I had, uh, I, just, uh, I just remembered, um, I think many of you know that I was, I was um, um, a student at the Clown School of San Francisco for for some time, and um, involved in a performance class. And one of the members of our troupe, she did her whole uh, skit based on the to-do list. And it was like, it was, I should bring in, I have a video of it, I should bring it in sometime, because it's, it's amazing. You know, it was like she was just exploring distraction as manifested through the to-do list. And she, her to-do list, she was preoccupied by it by in the skit, and of course nothing ever got done. <laughs> but it's so, so I think we get, we get some of the flavor. There's procrastination. A big theme is that there may be um, energies taking, wanting to take us away from what's unpleasant or what we're perceived as unpleasant. It could be mild or major. It could be just discomfort in some way. It could be mild boredom or whatever. That can take us into distraction. There is a strong cultural piece to distraction, and in many ways, you know, I was reflecting that our culture, I don't know if it's more distracted than other cultures or encourages distraction more, but it seems in many ways to encourage distraction. Uh, to, in fact, um, one could argue that the economy to a significant degree is based on distraction. I mean, and some of this was related to pain. It's quite explicit. After 9-11, what was the advice? Don't feel the feelings. Go shopping, right? So it's quite, 
it, it's actually quite uh, deep in the culture, and I won't I won't so much go into that. But I think it's it, there, there's a there's a piece there. It's also a very mental culture. You know, one of the ways that I think that we can uh, work with distraction in a skillful way is being more in our bodies and coming back to our bodies. A lot of the uh, way that distraction appears is that we go into a totally mental zone, just thinking we're not so much embodied, we don't really feel our bodies. And to some extent, coming back to the body is a way to break the trance, is a way to go against that sense of distraction. There's also uh, a sense of speed uh, that's very strong in our culture. It's a mental culture. It's also a very speedy culture. And I thought I'd read something that uh, my dear friend uh, Diana Winston, who also teaches here, she wrote this um, probably about 10 years ago uh, about the speedy nature of our culture. I don't have time to write letters, read books, visit my friend, play with my little brother, kiss, touch, sigh, dance, relate, eat, eat ice cream, make music, cook, pray, smell, meditate, take a walk. My God, make it all stop. I don't have time and it's running out and I'm running fast and furiously and I want it to stop and it's so painful. Why won't it stop? Can't you make it stop? And what's wrong with this country? How have we all gone crazy? We're insane. We've lost touch. We have lost touch. We've got to stop this endless running about. All I want to do is slow down, just crawl into bed and rock myself to to sleep. So this crazy, not this crazy running about, I am so tired. Please, somebody, you have got to help me make it stop. Anyone relate to that? <laughs> so there's the, you know, there's the cultural, there's cultural basis. There's the sense of um, speed. There's the sense of uh, uh, the mental culture. There's, um, there's multitasking. There are all the, tech, you know, the technological possibilities of all the media. Um, and this, in a way, really distracts us. You know, we get distracted so that... Um, to me, it's very significant that there's tremendous energy for all sorts of trivial things, and we're, we don't pay attention to our wars very much. You know? And we don't pay attention to the pain in the society, and we get very preoccupied with things that are essentially distractions. You know? So it's actually quite, you know, distractions at the level of the culture and society are actually quite serious. You know? And it's, it's a, I think it's a major issue. You know, I've, I've always observed that, you know, the, um, there are these programs that I occasionally listen to on uh, sports talk radio. <coughs> I don't know if anyone listens to that, but they get, they get tremendous amount of attention, you know, and, and yet there's nothing comparable um, that really looks into ordinary affairs of citizens and so forth. I guess, the, I guess some of the polemical things do. But there's a way that, that we're very distracted and we tend to focus on things that seem to be more superficial and we don't focus on the more important things. So how do we, how do we address uh, that, this distraction on these three levels? You know, in many ways, our practice of mindfulness is a direct response to mindlessness. You know, and it's initially a training in how to be attentive. And one of the first things we find when we do mindfulness practice is that it's hard to be attentive, that our minds are conditioned. Part of the reason for bringing in the cultural or social element is that when, I think it's important when we look at our distracted minds not to take it personally. 
and to know that that our uh, that our conditioning is in large part not our response. It's not our. We shouldn't blame ourselves. Ultimately, it is our responsibility, but it's not. A, we don't blame ourselves for having caused our own minds necessarily. I think there are many factors that lead us to be more distracted. So when we enter into uh, meditation practice, we have a way of directly addressing, I think, these three ways that we get distracted on the individual level, in our day-to-day lives, and in terms of our larger purposes, our larger intentions with life. And so we go back to this very simple practice of being with the breath. Our mindfulness practice is a training in not being distracted. It's very simple. Here's an account of mindfulness. This is from about 1,500 years ago. This is from a commentary on the text on mindfulness in the teachings of the Buddha. Mindfulness signifies presence of mind, attentiveness to the present, rather than the faculty of memory. It has the characteristic of not wobbling. Buddhist technical term, wobble. <laughs> it, has the, uh, it has the characteristic of not wobbling, that is, not floating away from the object. That's a precise definition of non-distraction, because distraction is the way that we cannot attend to what we're focusing on, that we get pulled away. So mindfulness is a direct response to distraction. It has the characteristic of not wobbling or not floating away from the object. Its function is absence of confusion or non-forgetfulness. So mindfulness has several aspects. One of the aspects is that we are able to attend and be present with whatever's happening. It helps us to develop that attentiveness, that ability to be with what's happening and, not, and be less distracted. It builds a certain level of concentration which we can work with. It also, very significantly, helps us to not be confused about what we're doing. In other words, not be distracted about what we're doing. And this is a slightly different aspect of mindfulness. This is essentially remembering to be mindful. Remembering that my intention is to be attentive. That I want to focus. In meditation it means remembering to be present. And this is something that can have a big effect in daily life, where the most difficult aspect of our practice in many ways in daily life is not that mindfulness is hard when we do it, but that it's very hard to remember to be mindful. The hardest thing about our practice in our daily lives is remembering to be mindful. Once you remember, mindfulness isn't that hard. It has its challenges, but the hardest thing is remembering. So it's useful to think of mindfulness as not just being present, but remembering to be present, (laughs) remembering to actually attend. And that's helped a lot by support, by coming to gatherings like this, by reading, by practicing, by coming back many times during the day, just for even for a little while. So we get training in learning to attend to train our attention, but we also get support for remembering to be mindful, for having that as a core intention. So its function is absence of confusion or non-forgetfulness. It is manifested as guardianship. So there's a sense also in which mindfulness is taken as protective, that it really protects us against the mind going off 
according to its own conditioning. You know, Shanti Deva from the 8th century talks about how the untrained mind and heart are more dangerous than a wild elephant. An image from India from the 8th century. But it's really saying that without mindfulness, we're somewhat at the mercy of our conditioning. Without that attentiveness. So mindfulness has these several functions. It helps us attend in the moment. It helps us to remember to be present, to connect maybe with our deeper goals. And it also helps us to uh, really protect ourselves, protect ourselves and others. There's um, a poem written by um, Anika Baker Lawrence, who was um, a teenager on a teen retreat that I helped to teach. Um, And she wrote this poem about mindfulness, which summarizes everything quite concisely. (coughs) Mindfulness. Mindless. Full mindness. Find nullness. Nin mol thes. Mindfulness. That's it. (laughs) So... So we cultivate mindfulness and we learn how somehow to uh, stay with what's there during our daily lives. We try to cultivate that attention and this is hard work. Even coming to Spirit Rock a lot, even being in the Bay Area where there's a lot of support, being mindful in daily life really takes practice. It really takes that support, it really takes commitment because it's very easy to be distracted. As I mentioned, I think that one of the real aids for mindfulness in daily life, and we could have a whole talk about that, one of the core aids is grounding in the body. There's a way that, that for me, this has really been key, that to actually keep that sense of non-distractedness, especially in this culture, it really helps to have a way that the monolithic stream of the mind is broken in some ways. One of the best ways is just to connect with the body, to feel the body. What that helps do is it helps give me some perspective that my mind is doing this or that. Otherwise, I can just be totally in that stream of the mind without even having any perspective, any balance. So different ways that we actually can have some attentiveness to what's going on in the present moment, to step back for a moment, to just ask what's going on, just to periodically ask what's happening right now, to come back to our body or come back to the breath, and to do that during the day at different times, or to do things that help. You know, there, you know uh, I have a, a list that I once did of 60 ways to develop mindfulness in daily life. I w- once thought of making a book out of it, which hasn't happened yet. But I tried to list 60 ways that really support mindfulness in daily life. And some of them are, came from my experience and that of friends and students. A lot of them are just really obvious, but a key would be really to keep coming back during the day to yourself. Not to lose yourself, to really keep coming back. It could be, you know, one of the simple things is after a meal, take a walk, come back to your body. Do periodic short five-minute meditations, come back. Ask yourself, what's happening right now? And just, and just come back in that way. Um, as we practice more, it becomes really possible, I think, 
to be less distracted. You know, one, one of the um, books which inspires me a lot is, is a wonderful book uh, from the Tibetan tradition called Blazing Splendor, which was uh, Toku Ergen, was a uh, Tibetan teacher. That, this was his uh, Dharma name. Wouldn't you like to have a name like Blazing Splendor as your, your Dharma name? And so this is, um, I wanted to read some passages. This, is, this was his main teacher talking to him at the end of his life about distraction. And this is a life of practice, you know, in conditions which are uh, not even present in Tibet these days or in Tibetan communities, this culture that was in many ways deeply dedicated to awareness, mindfulness, and non-distraction. So this is his teacher who I think died about 1950, talking to him. His, his teacher was his uncle, actually, named Samtin uh, Gatso. He said this, I was introduced to mind training at the age of eight. Because of my firm disposition, I have made steady progress. My development hasn't come in leaps and bounds, but I didn't backslide either, just slow and steady. In fact, I only noticed a change when I looked back comparing my present development with that of previous years. Important point. That development can be very gradual. You sometimes hear of yogis who advance tremendously within a few months. I must admit that this never happened to me. Yet since I have practiced continuously from the age of eight, you might say that my level of practice is now fairly good. About 70, when I think, when he's saying this. I still have one problem, though, maintaining awareness in the brief period between falling asleep and actually sleeping. There are a few moments in which I lose presence of mind and the awakened state is briefly lost. But once sleep begins, the awakened state is recognized and remains stable through the whole night. The only challenge left now is that one small gap just as I fall asleep. (laughs) Then he goes on to say, Actually, I really have no great qualities, nothing marvelous to boast of, except that my distraction has vanished. The tendency to forget mind essence now seems to have vanished completely from my experience. No matter how much work piles up, no matter who comes to see me, no matter how many people crowd into my room, my lucid quality only grows. I find that when I stay alone and uninvolved with no task at hand, the clarity of awareness subsides somewhat, although I am not distracted. But the more people, the more busyness, and the more turmoil I am involved in, the more the strength of the awareness grows. And so I think that points to some potential that is, is there. And I know from my own experience, and that of many others, that it really is possible to become less and less distracted. It really, it really is a real possibility as we practice. Part of it is to actually keep developing the mindfulness and to, in a sense, we, distraction is not so much the enemy but just something that we notice. So I think it's quite important not to necessarily judge or push down distraction. Sometimes we have to say, no, I'm not going to be distracted now. I will just attend. But we can really um, have a more compassionate view towards our distraction. I think that's quite important. That we can uh, just, we just keep coming back, basically. 
That's what our practice is. We just notice I was distracted. We just keep coming back. When I was first meditating, I've told this story once or twice, um, I had been a student in Germany, and I didn't know whether I wanted to go back and live in Germany. I was introduced to meditation. My first month of meditation, I would sit there, go in, out. Should I live in Germany? United States. Germany? United States. Germany? United States. Half for half an hour, then, oh, back to the breath. <laughs> that was my first month of practice, right? And we just keep coming, our practice is to just notice when you get distracted and keep coming back over and over again without judging, without really uh, blaming ourselves. And we have to watch for that. We just keep coming back. So there's a lot of patience that's developed. It's really how we develop our, our practice. And I think that I was thinking of this in relation to Thanksgiving. Some of us may be in conversations on Thanksgiving where other people seem distracted. We may be in distracted conversations. And I think we can also, one of the, in, in the text it said, uh, to know distraction as distraction, to know distracted mind as distraction mind. And so it's actually sometimes for me it's challenging if I'm there and someone's just caught in distraction, how do you respond, right? I was thinking of this especially for Thanksgiving meal. And I think there can be some compassion towards the, those, uh, those persons if there's that distraction. And we can really recognize this distraction and maybe be skillful about bringing the conversation back or whatever. But in a sense, we have to recognize that we're often distracted and other people are. And just to see it and just to notice that is quite important. The last area I wanted to talk about is the way that we can get distracted about our very lives. And this is more poignant in many ways, that we can lose sight of what's most important. And I think this is probably more the norm than we might think. You know, I taught uh, college for about um, seven years. And I would often ask my students, um, what do you want to do? And they would have their sense of what they wanted to do, but they didn't, none of them, very few of them had a sense that what they most deeply wanted to do was possible in their lives. They thought they had to take jobs that took them away from what they thought was most important. And if that's a typical scenario, then people get distracted and then we have midlife crises. Or then we have end-of-life crises where we wonder what we've done. And that's tragic in a way. And so how to really be in touch with what's most important so that our lives are not distracted. So that we do, in the, in the language of the Buddha, he talks about our lives doing what needs to be done. There's an interesting language. He talks about that, or that we are doing what touches our deepest intention. So how to do that? You know, that's, that's a big challenge. And again, we could give, more, give a lot of attention. I just want to be brief on that and mention a few things. One of them is just that to touch what we most deeply value, we often need space and time. And in our speedy culture that's often distracted, we often don't set aside open space and time. I know in times where I've been interested in a transition, I sometimes had to stop working so much to have open time where something new or something deeper could come to the surface. Sometimes we need to do that. We need to just have open time, which can be scary, you know. 
And we have to be able to be there with that anxiety that we were talking about and not just be distracted. Because sometimes that anxiety is actually like the guardian for what's deeper in ourselves. We have to go through the, the anxiety to touch what's deeper. And if we follow the anxiety, we may stay with the distraction. And so we often need to have that, sen- that um, space and time open up. It might mean taking retreats. Retreats are wonderful ways to do that. You know, for me, I've typically been able to connect with deeper intentions through retreats. Very, very crucial to set aside space and time. Another very simple practice is just at the beginning of a sitting, or maybe once or twice a day, to really invite my deeper intention to be there. And I often invite this at the beginning of a sitting for myself and sometimes here. Let me touch base with what's most important to me, even if it's on the level, even if it's verbal and not so deeply felt, that can help. So what's my deeper intention? Why do I sit? And we might use language like, I want to be free, or I want to be able to um, help both myself and others, or I want to be, I want to open my heart, or I want to have an open mind and an open heart, or have wisdom or love or whatever. And to touch base with that motivation uh, at the beginning of a sitting, during the day, is a way that we might be less distracted because then we can very easily see when am I moving away from that? So working with intentions and aspirations is very crucial. Ask, using those intentions before activities. I always remember what I heard from Julia Butterfly Hill, that she tries to ask, ask before every action, is my action coming out of love? That's a way to stay non-distracted. Right? Can I, are my actions coming out of my deeper motivation? How do I keep that contact during the day? How do I keep that in my life? This is, these are really ways that we can um, work through that sense of distraction. So I think I will end with, um, end with a short reading from Thich Nhat Hanh about, about the way that mindfulness is really one of the keys to, to working through distraction. This is from his book called The Miracle of Mindfulness. He says, Mindfulness is the miracle by which we master and restore ourselves. It is the miracle in which we call back in a flash our dispersed or distracted mind and restore it to wholeness so that we can truly live each minute of life. Thus mindfulness is at the same time a means and an end, the seed and the fruit. Mindfulness itself is the life of awareness. Mindfulness enables us to live. He says, mindfulness enables us to live. We call back in a flash our dispersed mind. So let's just sit for a moment and then we can talk together. Any reflections or comments, observations, questions? Please, George. Uh, 
that uh, mindfulness uh, involves focus, mm-hmm. focus of intention. Yeah. And uh, and that uh, often is uh, I, I can focus on when you're speaking or if I'm listening to something. I, I could I think that's a form of being mindful when I'm listening to something. Or um, uh, but I have I have. I have trouble often. Um, uh, I'm a musician, and often uh, listening. I've played all my life, but the act of listening to music, the really listening to it, uh, I am not always mindful. Mm-hmm. To start. I've never done this in my life to be able to sit and listen to a symphony deeply all the way through without my mind going off and mm-hmm. forgetting what the theme was and disappearing into that space. Uh, so it seems to me that mindfulness is a lot about focus. Mm-hmm. And also occurred to me that uh, focus when I'm reading, mm-hmm. it seems to be that I'm mindful. Usually if I'm really reading intently with what, that's a form of being mindful. Mm-hmm. And then it went on to another thing. We're watching a movie, perhaps I'm in the, into that fully, into that, and I'm not distracted because I'm caught up with what's going on in time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you, George. Um, I think, well, mindfulness is not exactly the same thing as just being attentive. Because uh, mindfulness adds a few pieces. Mindfulness needs to be attentive, but there's also this sense of knowing what's happening. So there's some awareness of experience. In other words, there, it's almost like an awareness of awareness in mindfulness. So I, you know, if I'm just reading a newspaper, I'm very attentive. I wouldn't call that mindfulness. Mindfulness is more the awareness of the experience itself. So I think there is that distinction uh, between just being attentive. Now, we need to be attentive to be mindful. We need a certain degree of ability to concentrate, to stabilize attention. And, uh, and so part of the training in mindfulness is to train ourselves in developing more concentration so that we can focus. But the, mind, the quality of mindfulness has that quality of remembering, of knowing what's there. So it's not simply focus. Yeah. So I'm just, yeah, I think that, that's, that's helpful because it is this sense, like, right now, can I be mindful of my experience listening? There's a difference between that mindfulness right now, which might involve a sense of my body, how my mind's working, what's going on. It's not just listening to my words. You can listen to my words without necessarily being mindful. Does that make some sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Freddie, please. Yeah. But my question is, so that, in my, for me, is to just notice that experience rather than tell them to listen. Is that it? You know, in other words, it's about me being mindful. It's not about getting them to be mindful. Um, yeah, so it, it, it is helpful to... Um, talk about the, you know, your experience as well as their experience. Um, I mean, sometimes, I mean, you might 
offer the possibility of being mindful to your, to your teenagers. They may resist that. <laughs> um, or they may be attracted to it. You know? um, so I, th- I think it's important to at least share your experience. But if, if, they're, um, if they're just being distracted and being mindless for whatever reason, um, I think that's tricky because you're you're uh, a parent, right? Uh, no, I teach horseback riding. Oh, this is for the people you work with. Right. Okay. Um, well, I would imagine that some kinds of mindfulness are important for safety, right? So. Um, so it's not for me to make it more interesting. It's just for me to talk to them about being maybe a little bit more mindful. Yeah, you might bring in mindfulness. Um, into your work. I mean, that, that seems like that could be helpful. It would, could it, you know, but we're, you know, we're not here to force mindfulness on people because it, it doesn't work, but to offer it as an option. And then what I was saying about Thanksgiving is uh, that sometimes we can just notice that people are distracted and just to notice that, to notice when I'm distracted, to notice, oh, they're distracted, right? That's Actually, in the teachings of the Buddha, something not so much taught here, but there are lines in the text where it says to be aware of what's going on in my mind and also as much as we can know in other people's minds, to notice distraction internally and also externally. So just to, and I think that can notice it, you know, like if we notice someone's distracted, we may not take so personally what someone says, if it's mean-spirited, right? If it's coming at us, it's very helpful to know when someone seems to be distracted. Yeah. Does that help some? Yeah. Please, uh, Sue. but 
Buddhism always seems to be talking about like don't be confused and this sort of unity and unification and, mm-hmm. and that's not how I experience myself. I seem to like discrepant or uh, multi-part, multi-part. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, thank you. So different different aspects of your question really about the more the relaxed focus and then just the different things happening and they feel not so unified, right? Not so unified um, uh, body energetic experiences, sometimes expansive feelings, sometimes contracted mind, and so forth. What? At the same time. Even very much in the same period of time. So um, I think the... um, Actually... um, I think some of, some of what we talk about as unification of mind is more the ability to keep tracking, to keep mindful. Because a lot of the experience, when the mindfulness is highly developed, is just of one thing after another without things necessarily fitting some grand unity, right? So there could be, you know, and I think that's common experience when we sit here, that we might... Uh, and, and, uh, non-distraction is just to track what's going on. So it's not to say that what's going on should fit some model. So it sounds like you're tracking pretty well in that extent, not distracted. Very good. <laughs> and um, yeah, so it's just to notice. Now there's an energetic experience in the body. Now there's, now there's um, uh, my mind's doing this that feels a little more small-minded. You know, now I'm doing that. Now this happening. And just to track it. And our practice is really to track what's happening, to really notice it like that, and then to respond basically with wisdom and compassion. You know, I often, I often say, I find myself saying that the core of our practice is using mindfulness to know what's happening. And that's what we've been emphasizing here this morning. We've been emphasizing more the mindfulness part, the non-distraction part. But then there's the, on the basis of that uh, mindfulness, on the basis of knowing what's happening, how do I respond with wisdom and compassion to each moment? What's, what's an appropriate way for me to respond? And that's the core of our practice. I would say those two pieces. That's the core. And so we track, we try to be non-distracted because if we're distracted, we don't really know reality in a sense. And so we cultivate non-distraction in order to see what's happening and then on that basis, that gives us a basis for responding on the basis of actually, we might say, accurate information or knowledge of what's happening. And then we summon our best wisdom and compassion. What should I do? What should I do moment to moment? How should I respond to this experience in my body? Or how should I respond to noticing that I'm distracted? How should I respond? Well, I'll just try to really make a concerted effort to come back to the breath. That could be appropriate response in this moment. Or it might be, um, I'll make an intention to meditate more regularly. That could be a wise and compassionate response. Or it could be, um, could be um, I want to take a walk later today. <laughs> you know, and then in our lives, we, we track things, we try to be non-distracted. And what's a wise and compassionate response to my deeper longings for what is meaningful to me in my life. That's also an aspect of wisdom and compassion. How do I respond to what Mary Oliver called this wild, precious life that I have? 
How do I do that? And I think we're suggesting that non-distraction is a foundation. To see where we're distracted, to, to respond, to train in being non-distracted. And then on the basis of that, we can really activate our intelligence and our love. And that's what this is all about. So I'm going to have to stop now, but we could, you could come up afterwards, just in terms of time. So, um, good. So let's just sit for 30 seconds or a minute to close. And they'll invite us in the next week to see where you get distracted and see how you can respond. What helps with non-distraction? What is distraction like? So I invite us to see what was helpful from today, set any intentions for the next period of time. And then we end with a dedication of merit, remembering that we cultivate non-distraction, not just for ourselves, but also for others. And we cultivate this big mind and big heart, not just for ourselves, but also for others. And we offer what's been helpful from the morning, out beyond these walls, of, out beyond the spirit rock, into the world for the benefit and healing of all beings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.